All right. Well, we are in the middle of a series called Serve the World, where we are remembering the third part of our mission statement as a church for why we exist, which is uh, the third part is serve the world, but it's love God, love the people, and serve the world. And so this whole fall has been dedicated to reminding ourselves the mission of God and the range of that mission. It's, it's quite broad, but it, as you recall, it started with making disciples of Christ, and then we started to talk about money and our attachment or detachment to material things and be more generous with our money. And then we talked about world mission. Well, for the next uh, three weeks, we're going to be talking about the biblical case for political reform. So what does it mean for a Christian to be gauged into the political arena? And today we have a special speaker for that, but her name is Sabrina Chan. And let me give you a little intro on Sabrina. Sabrina is the National Director of InterVarsity's Asian American Ministries. After growing up in Richmond, don't get too excited, it's Richmond, Virginia. Um, she first began connecting her faith with her culture as an InterVarsity student leader at Rice University. You excited about that? Yeah. Go Rice. Woo! Um, and she led church, uh, plant, planting efforts, uh, InterVarsity chapter uh, efforts um, at community college in Northern California, Northern Nevada, Hawaii, and um, directed the region's first racial justice conference for students. Sabrina is ordained in 2009 and earned her Master's of Arts Theology from Fuller. Caitlin, shout out, Fuller. Okay. Somewhere she shut him out. Uh, and now she lives in Berkeley with her husband and her two kids. By the way, she is a member of CWOW, and Pastor Gary from CWOW came and spoke, and so we're getting a double dose. So let's give a warm welcome to Sabrina Chan as she comes up here and speaks. Um, yeah, so as Pastor Andrew mentioned, I'm from InterVarsity, from CWOW, and I also wanted to give you all a picture of my family since... Um, since uh, we're talking about that's actually at Easter, Resurrection Sunday. At CWAL, we do this, we have a cross, and then we get to put flowers on the cross, and then it's fun to take a family picture. So my kids, Dory and Thaddeus, they're four and two. Um, they're not here because they're at, at CWAL in their regular class, um, but they're pretty excited about me getting to teach the grown-ups. So this morning, as I was getting ready, I was like, okay, I got to go. I'm not going to come to church with you. Remember, I'm going to go teach the grown-ups. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. See you, Mama. Okay, great. So it's good to be back here again. I was actually here, I think a little less than two years ago, Advent. Um, and so it's fun. It's always nice to get invited back, you know, because you're like, okay, I don't know how that went. But it's good to be back. Um, and I'm really excited to hear about the series that y'all have been in. Um, you know, like, as Pastor Andrew referred to just now, y'all have been addressing some pretty good topics, um, weighty, important topics. And I, I love that about um, what y'all are doing here at the church. Um, and uh, so today, Pastor Andrew has asked me to address racism. So the next slide, I think, talks about realities of race and racism. Um, so Pastor Andrew asked me to address racism, especially institutional racism. And I understand that might be um, a topic y'all haven't addressed in a while. So uh, I'm going to try and introduce it as well as I can. Um, we're going to look at some scripture um, as well. But I, I want to pause here before we get to the scripture to to sort of give you a little bit of framework of how I'm thinking about race right now. 
Um, if you've been paying attention to the news lately, um, it's, it's been a heavy season, um, even particularly this past week. So even preparing for the sermon, thinking about institutional racism, it's been hard to get away from just plain old straight up racism and race-related violence. Um, so I'll talk more about what institutional racism is and how it might differ a little bit or expand on it a little bit more. But um, earlier this week, right, in Louisville, maybe you heard, a white man shot a black woman and a black man in Kroger uh, because they were black. Um, we know this because he was overheard speak, exchanging words with a white man outside in the parking lot, and he said, oh, whites don't shoot whites, and he didn't shoot that guy, right? Let him go. Um, What you might not know is that just before that, he had been caught on, he was caught on surveillance video trying to get into a black church. Now, we can't totally know what he was trying to do getting into a black church, but as we know in Charleston, white men with guns trying to get into black churches, um, it's, it, it can be really violent, right? People died. Um, and yesterday, you heard about the man who shot up a synagogue, uh, I think killing 11 people there, who were there for Sabbath worship. And, and injuring many more. Um, it, it's a little bit, I, yeah. And, and the news is reporting that he um, did that because he was angry at Jews for helping uh, the caravan of migrants, quote-unquote, the caravan of migrants. So he was saying, posting online and all this kind of stuff, saying like, oh, the Jews are helping these, quote-unquote, invaders too much, and I'm going to go do something about it, right? So... It's not hard to realize, right, that we live in a society that is deeply affected by race. Um, we live in a racialized society, right? Um, but it's not just the problem of the, uh, the outlier, the one crazy person, right? Or, you know, this week, the several crazy people, quote-unquote, right? It's not just a problem of um, the, 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 the one event here, the one event there, oh, it's not in my backyard, it's okay, Right? I think it's a problem for us individually, right? the hate um, in our own hearts, the lack of love in our own hearts, but it's also a problem of the institution, all right? so of the system. So the first time I really started thinking about, so I, as Pastor Andrew said, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and Richmond, Virginia, if you don't remember your history too well, it's the capital of the Confederacy, so I grew up in a place that has a high African-American population, has a high white population. When I was growing up there, there were very few, very, very few Asian-Americans. If you saw an Asian-American person in the mall, you either already knew them, so you went over and like, said hi, or you didn't know them, and you went over and said hi, just to like, oh, wow. You know, so that's just to give you a little background. And where I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, the schools I went to didn't really address institutional racism. So I'm hoping that's different for folks today, um, but I did not really learn much. I mean, we learned about slavery, but I literally had a teacher talk about the war of northern aggression, right? So I literally had teachers who talked about, um, oh, the, the, the Civil War was not a war about slavery. So, you know, you think that doesn't happen, but I'm not that old, okay? Um, and they were talk, teaching this. Um, So when I, went to, when I was in college, um, this is a, a key moment of thinking about reflecting on our own country. Um, I spent uh, a summer teaching English in Western China. Um, and actually, China has a large number of minority groups. I think there's something like 48 officially recognized minority groups in China, because not everybody is Han Chinese. They've just managed to take over a large amount of territory where there's a lot of different ethnic groups. Um, and there's a people group in there in Western China that... Um, that we got to connect with a lot. We were teaching English in their local area. And um, we recognized the ways that they were being mistreated, 
um, in, in their own city, in their own place, by the Han Chinese and the government, as well as the Han Chinese who had moved into the area. Um, coming home, I learned and read a lot about how Amnesty International um, critiqued China at that time, this is like the late 90s, um, critiqued China for um, the rates of incarceration of these minority groups in Western China, right? The rates of incarceration of people going to jail for who knows what um, were really, really high compared to, um, you know, outsizing what it should be based on percentage of population. And as I learned about that, I also read that that's the same critique that Amnesty International had in the late 90s of the United States, right? So the outsized rates of incarceration of African Americans in our country, um, that, you know, I'm reading, I'm learning about this, you know, and I'm like, oh, Amnesty's saying the same thing about China that they're saying about us. Okay, I gotta pay attention, right? Like, I gotta, and that started to open my eyes. The other things I hadn't learned about growing up, I didn't learn about um, Japanese-American incarceration in my history classes um, growing up. I didn't learn about that until late college, um, talking with friends who were taking Asian-American studies classes, all these different things. Um, I didn't learn about the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, these were things that were kind of, well, they were just ignored in my history classes, but um, I also think there just wasn't as much awareness um, back then. Um, it's also, like I said, Richmond, Virginia. I'm hoping that out here in California, y'all have heard about that, learned about that a lot more. Um, I share all that to say we live in a racialized society, right? Um, uh, Christian Lehman as a historically Japanese-American church um, was affected by Japanese-American incarceration here. Um, I'm sure others could tell that story way better since I don't really know it. But um, the neighborhood I live in, I live in South Berkeley. Um, when, uh, when we moved in there, um, we, were, we were doing some research, and South Berkeley has been a, was a historically black and Japanese neighborhood. Um, we found some stuff in the attic that was from music from um, the local AME church. Um, and found the name of one of the people who had lived in our home. And so when I Googled that, um, it pulled up census records from the 1930s of this person and also showed like who else had lived on our block, right, and who had lived in our neighborhood. Um, and it was just really powerful to read all these names. Um, some of them African-American, it's the census records, right, so you can see, some of them African-American, many of them Japanese-American. Um, we live right around the corner from um, a, a temple. And just thinking about, oh, what happened? shortly after um, the 1930s, right, when World War II happened and incarceration. Um, I say all that as background to say we live in a racialized society. Um, last week, Pastor Gary talked about politics, right, um, and our participation in politics. And I want to reiterate something he said that applies here, too. Um, scripture doesn't explicitly address racialization, um, race. Um, it's a construct that developed after New Testament times, right? Just like scripture doesn't explicitly address how to participate in a representative democracy, um, it doesn't explicitly address dating, um, those things didn't really exist then, right? Um, and at the same time, we engage with that because it's part of our reality, realities of race and racism. Um, we're engaged with that, with, with the system of race, um, because we live in society, right? We're not exempt from that. It's not, a, it's not a whether we should engage with racism, it's a how do we engage with racism, just like Pastor Gary talked about last week with politics. Um, and as we know, cultural divisions 
and ethnicity and ethnic identity are throughout scripture, right? So we have plenty of places to learn from scripture about um, examples of how we should be thinking about um, relating to others, even if it doesn't explicitly talk about race because they didn't have this kind of um, system back in New Testament times. So with those things in mind, we live in a racialized society. Scripture speaks to cultural divisions, all right? Let's look at today's passage, okay? You still with me? All right. Acts 6, 1 through 7. I'm going to read it for us, but it's also up on the screen. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, Now in some Bibles, they, they put the heading on top of this, the choosing of the seven, because they're thinking about it's about leadership selection, it's about how they, how they chose some people to, to serve others. Um, I think it should be called something like the first ethnic conflict, right? Um, the first because it's not like we've stopped having conflicts um, in the church. Um, but this is a real challenge. The, early, the church has been around, it's hard to tell, right? Six chapters of Acts. Might be a few months, might be a year. Um, but this is a significant conflict that they're having that they wrote about. Like, they, it was important enough to write about in the thing, right, um, in the scriptures. Um, so a few things of, of background. So there's, as we see in the passage, there's a daily distribution of food to the widows, right? So the early church here, they weren't necessarily doing something new. They were actually taking very seriously the commands in Judaism. The Old Testament talks a lot about how you need to care for the widows and the orphans. Right? So they're taking that command very seriously. So it's, it seems like there's a daily distribution of food um, that's, having, that's happening. And there's a problem with the food distribution system. All right? There's two kinds of people in this passage um, that are listed for us, Hellenists and Hebrews. Um, Hellenists were Greek-speaking members of the Jewish diaspora. Okay? So Greek-speaking members of the Jewish diaspora. Now, actually, most people in this time probably spoke Greek. But for the Hellenists, that's their first language. Um, for these, what they call the, um, oh, where is it, the Hebrews, Greek is probably their second, maybe third language, um, so it's, it's a cultural difference that they're talking about here. These are all members of the Jewish diaspora, but they're culturally different. So the Hellenists speak Greek, that's their, like, heart language. Um, the Hebrews probably also speak Greek, but it's not their heart language. They're, like, you know, third language. Um, Greek was just the trade language of the day, right? Um, so the Hellenists spoke up and it says they complained, right? The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. For some reason, that's not a word that I'm, I'm usually drawn to, right? Maybe it's um, years of programming to not complain. My mom would always say, don't complain about this, don't complain about that. And, I mean, I think that's important, right? Like, 
there's things to be grateful for and stuff like that. But I don't, I don't want that to overshadow that there are legitimate reasons to complain, right? They're getting, the widows are getting overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That means that they're not getting enough to eat and they're gonna get sick and they're gonna die, right? This is gonna have impact. So there are legitimate reasons to complain. How will others know that there's a problem? I don't know if it was the widows directly complaining. It, it kinda doesn't seem like it because it says the Hellenists as a group, um, names them as the group. So I think what happened here is that the, the whole group of Hellenists now is speaking up on behalf of some of the most marginalized in their community, right? The widows are the most marginalized in their community. Um, and like I said, the church here, it's only six chapters old, maybe a few months, uh, maybe a year, um, and already there are systemic issues, right? Systemic issues. There's a system, there's a food distribution system, and there's a problem with it. Um, so the apostles said, we need to fix this, right? Okay, so that's good. They brought the complaint. The apostles said, okay, we need to fix this. Um, often the, the majority ignores the minority. Often there's a way that power, the powerful can um, overlook the concerns of the minority, even when it's brought to them their attention. But here what's different is that the apostles give them power. And they don't just give uh, them power. They give the people power here. They tell the people, go select seven people, right? They bring the whole, oh, actually, they bring the whole community together as well, right? They bring the whole community together as well. And they said to the whole community, go pick seven people who are going to be in charge of this thing. Well, who do they pick? They pick seven people, seven men with Greek names. They all have Greek names. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, some, some, the Hebrews didn't tend to have Greek names. So we can assume that these people are Hellenists. Um, in, in fact, one of them is a convert. He was ethnically not even Jewish. The part that says um, there's a proselyte of Antioch, that means he was someone who actually converted to Judaism and now is part of the early church. Right? So he wasn't even Jewish. They picked a guy who wasn't even Jewish. Um, in addition to all these Greek-speaking Jews, all these Hellenists. Um, the people, the people, the community, the whole community, not just the Hellenists, chose these people. The whole community chose these people. They saw that they needed to make a statement, right, and appoint all Hellenists um, to lead uh, this ministry, to lead this daily distribution of food. Um, the, this, the apostles here actually too, the way we read it, the way, the way, the way it says, um, therefore, uh, it is not right f- uh, that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait tables. Line two, uh, verse two. You can also translate wait on tables uh, as keep accounts. So, and not just that the disciples are being all like, oh, we're too good to like hand out food. Um, They're trying to figure out like, the church is new, we're trying to teach what Jesus told us to teach, and we need to set up some systems to make this work. But we aren't the ones who should be running these systems because we need to teach what Jesus taught us to teach. Remember, at this point, they're they're some of the only ones who got to interact with Jesus, and the church is growing, growing, growing. Um, So they're setting up a system now um, to keep these accounts. In fact, I think they're actually elevating um, this uh, role. The way they chose these leaders, um, the way they uh, pray for them, laid hands on them, that's exactly what they did for the the new apostle. When they had to replace Judas and and replace a new apostle, they prayed for him and laid hands on him. They're actually elevating what the importance of this role. Uh, They use the word serving for both, right? Serving the word and serving tables. They're actually elevating what what this position is. Um, So that's a bit about the scripture passage. Let's hold that right now um, as we consider how this passage applies to us today. So for a church, uh, for this church um, that's historically Asian American, 
I wanted to take a few minutes to look at how racialization also affects us. Um, so for my friends here today that aren't Asian American, um, please, uh, well, uh, please listen in. <laughs> please excuse the moment for us to sort of have a little bit of talk. We don't get a lot of spaces to talk about how racialization affects Asian Americans. Um, and the first thing I want to say about that is uh, Asian America isn't just East Asian, right? I think we know this, but I just want to make sure to say this up front. I think, I think U.S. society tends to think Asian American means uh, Japanese, Korean, Chinese. Um, and that's not what it is. That's not what it's been for a long time. But uh, just want to reiterate, you know, um, large numbers of Filipino Americans, Indian Americans, Pakistani Americans, Southeast Asian Americans, Cambodian, uh, Vietnamese, uh, Bhutanese, Sri Lanka, like all different kinds, right? So Asian America is actually much broader than maybe what racialization would tell us, right? Um, it's interesting, different, different um, countries think of it different ways. If you go to England and you talk about Asian, um, they mean South Asian. They mean Indian American because there's such a large population of um, South Asians in England. Thank you, colonialism. Um, so here, when you say Asian, people tend to think East Asian, but that's, I just want to expand the definition. So for one. For two, um, institutional racism. Uh, sometimes I actually prefer to call this white supremacy or white normativity. And let me explain that, okay? Um, White normativity or right, white supremacy works at keeping whiteness, so whiteness is a concept, um, and whiteness can have a shifting definition, um, but it works to keep whiteness at the top. Okay, I'm not saying that that's like every individual white person is trying to do this. So I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the institution of white supremacy. Um, not white people aren't individually, I mean, some people are, right? So there's white supremacists, white nationalists who are trying to like, purify the nation and all this mess. But um, I'm talking about white supremacy as an institution, um, a system. Uh, Pastor Gary last week talked about principalities and powers. I would call this one of them. Um, it's another way to describe institutional racism. But it keeps um, whiteness in power. And whiteness is basically what um, is acceptable in uh, American society. So, um, you know, people... Uh, I don't want to get too far down this road, but different waves of immigration, whiteness was expanded in a sense, right? So um, Italians, Irish, when they first came over, they weren't considered white either. Um, and they were victims of incredible, um, victims of racism. Um, but they kind of fit in better and better. And so now it typically includes that as well um, as a system. Um, so white supremacy, white normativity, I think it's another way of explaining what um, institutional racism is. Uh, another way of explaining institutional racism is like, is we all know that we have prejudices in our hearts, right? Um, we work to submit them to Jesus. We work to love. Um, but I would argue that many of us, I would say probably all of us, have unconscious biases that have been perpetuated by the system we live in, the TV we watch, uh, the news, the reports, you know, things we're taught in school, like I was telling you earlier. Um, all those things add up to more than the sum of its parts, right? So an individual um, sin adds up to systemic sin, and that's a system is much more powerful than just an individual. So these widows that were getting overlooked, was it super malicious? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's just that the people that were giving out the food knew the Hebrew widows better. And so they were just like, go to their houses first. And then, oh, we ran out. You know, maybe they forgot about so-and-so and so-and-so because their name was harder to pronounce for them. Or they didn't know which street they lived on or something like that. Was it super malicious? I don't know. 
but their blind spots and the ways it added up into a system affected, affected the church, affected the way that that was um, being carried out. Um, the church here was very young, like I said, months to a year maybe, um, and we already see the way that the systems were biased. How much more so than our country, um, which has been around for much, much longer and has so many more systems, right? Um, the Declaration of Independence talks about merciless Indian savages, um, Native Americans. In the, in the um, Declaration of Independence, in our Constitution, black slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of representation, um, which was you know, actually a compromise because the southern states were actually using the population of black slaves as a ploy to gain more power for themselves. That's a whole other thing. Those slaves had no right to vote or anything, of course. Um, and for us as Asian Americans, I think one of the things that impacts us is, is, well, there's two things, but I'll talk about one first. The model minority myth and perpetual foreigner. So I'll try and explain it and come with me. Um, the model minority myth, um, which you, I'm hoping you all know about, but to explain it a little more, it's a way to describe, um, it's a way that white supremacy pits Asian Americans against other communities of color, right? So it's a way to say, oh, well, Asian Americans have made it. Why can't you? right, to other communities of color. Um, there are so many reasons why this is wrong. Um, one, it's used as a wedge to pit us against other communities of color while still keeping us second class. It's a broad generalization that doesn't tell the whole story of Asian America, whether that's ethnic groups or particular communities. Um, how people come into the country makes a big difference in how, um, how they're able to um, how they're able to live and thrive, right? Um, my parents came over as immigrants post-1965 for graduate school. That's really different than folks whose parents came over as refugees from a war, right? Or as folks whose ancestors came over as slaves in a slave ship, right? The, the model minority myth tries to elevate Asian Americans a little bit over other people of color to say, like, why can't y'all be like this, right? These people have made it. Um, and it also... Yeah, but it also keeps us second class, right? Statistics these days, uh, a study came out last year from a Brown University economist um, that was studying native-born Americans, black, white, Asian, Latino. So they're keeping it to folks who were born here, so exclude, trying to exclude immigration. And they were looking at what happened after World War II. And basically they realized what happened, what happened for some Asian Americans at that time is basically America stopped being a little less economically racist towards Asian Americans. So the rate of pay for Asian Americans went up compared to other communities of color, still less than white Americans, right? So even today, right, same amount of education, uh, Asian Americans make less than white Americans um, if, you, if you equalize for education. So back then in the 40s till 70s, something like that, uh, basically America became a little, American society became a little less racist towards Asian Americans and that's why they started making a little more than other communities of color. Now you add in post-1965 immigration, right, when finally the Chinese Exclusion Act and some of those acts were, were, were let go and people are coming in. They only let in certain kinds of people uh, in a lot of cases. Um, people with some skills, people with some education, uh, things like that. That changes the whole way that a community um, uh, grows. Um, but at the same time, the model minority myth ignores a lot of things. Um, the, the community with the highest poverty rate in New York City, Asian Americans. Um, partly that's because of the high rate of immigration there, but also Chinese American community in, in New York City is actually pretty poor, 
Um, there's a lot of seniors, senior citizens, um, all these different things. Um, and, and finally, one of seven Asian American immigrants is undocumented. I think that's a statistic that we don't um, recognize enough. That number has tripled in the past 15 years. That number of undocumented Asian Americans, it's growing way faster than the rate of Latino undocumented immigrants. Um, and for some of us, the model minority myth might feel true, right? Like, oh, well, I worked hard. Um, I did this thing. Um, I studied hard. Um, I'm not knocking that. But I think we have to look at things with two eyes. We need two eyes to see in 3D, right? Um, yes, personal investment, personal choice is a thing. I'm not discounting that. I'm not saying the system runs everything, 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 and your personal choice doesn't matter whether you study or not, or you know, all that stuff. Personal choice, sure, it matters. But at the same time, along with that, the system, the, way, the things we're working on in matters too. And you need two eyes, you need both lenses to see accurately. Um, so I think if you wanna say, oh no, we can't look, use the lens of system, then you're not seeing accurately. Right, what's really happening. Another analogy people use is the moving sidewalk. Right? Depending on your level of acceptance in US society, which often correlates to skin color, right? how dark you are, um, then you're on a different level moving sidewalk. So yeah, you might be running fast, but if your moving sidewalk is going backwards because of the system, then, you're, then, then you, you can't compare yourself to someone who's running fast and their moving sidewalk is still or even moving forward. Um, Along with that model minority myth is the perpetual foreigner. So no matter how many generations back, uh, we tend to go back, uh, fifth generation, I have some friends who are like fourth, fifth generation. In much of US society, we're viewed as foreigners, right? Why is your English so good? When did you get here? Uh, go back to where you came from. My very first trip to San Francisco, uh, I was a young working professional, landed at the airport, got in line for the taxi. There was no lift back then. Um, and the other guy in the line like thought I cut in line with him, I guess, or he didn't realize there was a line, but he, in no uncertain terms, told me to go back where I came from. And it was clear to me he did not mean Houston, Texas, right? He was really angry, and I was like, whoa, this is San Francisco. <laughs> like, okay. Um, so perpetual foreigner, and I think those two things work together. Perpetual foreigner and model minority, they work together. Because that perpetual foreigner thing makes us want to work harder so we can fit in and show that we can succeed and assimilate um, and want to buy in to the model minority myth. That model minority myth, my friends, is it's a trap, to borrow from Star Wars. It's a trap. Because what have we given up as well, even for folks who feel like, feel like it's working for them, if it's, model minority is a good thing? What are the things we've given up? Um, what aspects of culture, um, what aspects of connection to our, um, our family. Asian Americans have some of the highest rates of depression and suicide um, in our country. Um, what, what are we really giving up um, to say that we've made it? Um, so that's a, that's a bit about racialization and how it's affecting us as Asian Americans. I want to come back to the passage and look at how we might be involved here. Um, first, thinking about complaining. When do we complain? When do we put our voice out there? Um, we have to be aware of things to even be able to complain. So the Hellenists had to even be aware that the widows were being overlooked. They had to be in conversation with the widows, to be in conversation with the marginalized, to know that they were being overlooked. Um, they could have decided, oh, well, we, we just want to be okay in the church. We just want to be accepted. 
So let's, let's try and get the widow's food our own way and not bring it up to the powers, right? Let's not bring it up to the church leadership because we can just, we'll figure it out. We'll find a way to figure it out. But no, they didn't. They felt like it was important enough to bring to the community to say, this is wrong. Um, we need to complain. Um, I think, you know, there's ways that my friends have complained about different things in the church, right? Like, um, a few years back, one of the largest denominations put out a, a vacation Bible school cr- uh, curriculum that stereotyped, horribly stereotyped Asian Americans, Asians, conflated Asian cultures. It was super horrible. Um, and calling out, complaining, saying, friends saying, this is wrong. And they took it public. Um, you can look it up. Um, and uh, took it public and said, this is wrong. How do we complain? not just on behalf of ourselves, but also for the marginalized in in our community. Um, Two years ago, an elderly Indian man got beaten within an inch of his life in Alabama. Um, What does it look like to complain about Indian men in a bar getting killed, Southeast Asians getting deported? Um, That's been happening a lot lately. Our current immigration challenges, um, the systemic abuse of African Americans by the police. Um, What does it look like for us to complain? Um, I think we can learn here from the Hellenists who bring that up. Um, I wonder if they thought about, um, the Israelites are often reminded, um, after they were slaves in Egypt, the Israelites were often reminded, God said, you were slaves in Egypt, remember that in how you treat the foreigners among you now, right? That's why they they were called radically to love the foreigners. They didn't always do it, but they were called to do that. I think of that for many of us in our stories as Asian Americans. We know what it is to be excluded. Chinese Exclusion Act, Japanese American incarceration. Um, How can we treat the foreigners among us now? That's why I care so much about immigration. Um, And that leads into how do we respond when we hear about things going on where we do have power, right? So how can we learn from the apostles and what they did? The apostles aren't trying to do it all themselves, for one. They're trying to empower others, empower the people affected, um, giving them that system. Some people call that, some people call this passage the first example of affirmative action, right? Because the people used ethnicity as part of their criteria in choosing the leaders. They said, actually, this system has been broken, so what we need to do is choose some leaders from the Hellenist community to make this work. Um, They used ethnicity as part of that. Um... How do we respond when we, we're places that we have power? How do we speak up? How do we advocate? And how do we empower as we do this? Um, I don't have answers for every single one of y'all. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where your family's at, your story, how racialization has affected you, um, how your migration story or your culture has affected you. But I can share a little bit about things I've been thinking about. Um, Like I mentioned, I I live in South Berkeley, um, and when we uh, were able to, by the grace of God, buy a house there, I also wrestled with questions of gentrification, right? Like, what does it mean that, that, you know, so I bought a house actually from somebody who had just recently bought a house there, so I knew that I wasn't displacing a family, necessarily, that had been there for dozens of years and stuff like that. But I also recognize that my buying a house here also has implications for what rent and what house prices will also be in this area. Now, I don't have awesome answers for that. I'm wrestling with that. But just to share with you, that's part of the reality of thinking about what it means to, we're engaged in the system whether, whether you think you are or not, right? We're part of the system. I bought a house through real estate. 
And real estate has a bad history of redlining and excluding and making some neighborhoods like this and some neighborhoods like that and putting, putting freeways through black neighborhoods so that they break them up, right? So we're engaged in the system whether, whether you acknowledge it or not. Um, what I've sought to do is just try and, try and ask God, try and learn from my friends, try and be aware, um, and try and take practical steps around my neighborhood of getting to know my neighbors, um, trying to support local initiatives in South Berkeley, um, trying to support um, organizations that have historically been there, taking my kids to the local South Berkeley festivals that are happening um, to help them learn about the neighborhood that they're in, um, not, not as somebody swooping in from the outside, but trying to, trying to, trying to be with people and learn. Um, another aspect that's big in my um, world right now is affirmative action. I work amongst college students. I deal with the university system a lot. Um, and uh, y'all might have heard about this lawsuit that's uh, been uh, pushed forward about Asian Americans at Harvard. Um, so they're saying Asian Americans are battling stereotypes that are discriminatory in admissions, and we should dismantle affirmative action because of it. Now, actually, I agree. Asian Americans battle stereotypes and discrimination in college admissions, just like we do in workplaces, in, um, in all these things. I agree, actually. There are problems. I don't think that uh, dismantling affirmative action, though, is going to solve that for us um, in any way, shape, or form, right? The person that's putting forth this lawsuit, Edward Bloom, he, a few years back, tried to do, do a lawsuit um, doing the same thing in Texas, actually at UT Austin, with a white student. It didn't work. So now... He's using a Chinese-American student at, trying to sue Harvard to say, oh, we should take this, take this whole um, system down. Um, affirmative action, it allows race to be considered as one of the factors in deciding whom to admit, right? In deciding who to give access to for this kind of education. Um, like, given what I said earlier about systems and how long the American system has been biased, um, has been broken, um, I think affirmative action is just one of the one of the least things we can do um, to try and remedy. It's not a perfect fix. It's a Band-Aid. I get that. But we have to take small steps. Um, and, of course, affirmative action doesn't just benefit um, the people who are admitted because the race was considered. It benefits all students by exposing them to viewpoints, life stories, and perspectives that they might not otherwise encounter. I think that's really important for schools that are trying to be training ground um, for our future leaders. Um, so yeah, affirmative action is something I'm thinking about. I'm not saying you have to agree with me on all these different things, but I think we have to wrestle with it. Um, these things are, I mean, I would love it if you agreed with me, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think we have to wrestle with these things um, because we're part of the system whether you admit it or not. Um, the question isn't whether to engage the system, the question is how, because we're a part of the system. Um, and if you're not working to fight the system, then you are perpetuating the system, right? Um, then it's just happening. You're being carried along by the current. So let me end with this, uh, because you know this has been heavy. It's been a lot. I started with race-related violence, <laughs> institutional racism, the early church getting thrown off by systemic uh, ethnic conflict already, um, the systems that are against, um, against God, against the Imago Dei, against people being made in the image of God. I want to say this. Um, our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in Jesus. Um, Jesus has had some things to say about systems too. If you remember, he turned over tables in the temple courts. 
right? That was a system, a religious system, an ethnic religious system actually as well because they kept Gentiles out of the temple that God never really designed it that way. They kept women out. Um, Jesus flipped over the temple courts, um, flipped over the tables there with the money changers. Um, And I think Jesus calls us to follow him in steps. Now, I don't know if he's calling us to like flip over money tables anywhere. I don't, I don't know of any. But God does call us to steps of faithfulness. Um, that we don't have to have 100% solutions, but our invitation is to follow Jesus in faithful steps. Um, one of those, I think, is voting. Um, like Pastor Gary talked about last week, our engagement with politics and the political system. So Tuesday, I encourage you to vote. Um, I encourage you to vote and think about the hospitality that God calls us to extend to outsiders. Um, I think uh, Pastor Calvin's going to talk more about that next week as well. Um, and then I offered, uh, I just one photo, if you can go to that. Thanks. So uh, y'all know that um, the policies of zero tolerance have made it so that families were, are being split up often at the border. Um, this picture's from, I think, June, um, when, uh, when, there were, when that was becoming more and more publicized. And um, I took my kids to a protest in San Francisco um, as a, fo- as a small step of faithfulness, right? I didn't go thinking, well, you know what? Now the, now the government is going to hear me, right? Like, hear me roar and my two kids, right? Like, I, I don't know that I, I'm that naive to think, like, this one thing is going to fix everything. Um, but for me, it was a small step of faithfulness. I went and I prayed and I talked to my kids about what it means, uh, about families, how we're trying to keep families together. Um, and we're trying, right? It's a small step of faithfulness. I'm trying to contact my representatives, um, try to be careful about where I'm spending my money, what kind of organizations I'm supporting, even when I'm, you know, going out to eat and stuff like that. Um, Jesus invites us to follow, um, but it's really up to Jesus. Um, I think we have to remember that. I think that's how any of the great activists, Christian activists, really, um, really have kept going, right? They know that they're following what Jesus invited them to, and they're going to do their best, and they're going to do their best at the strategy and speaking up and speaking where, everybody will, where anybody will listen to them. Um, but our civil rights activists that we learned from uh, in the 60s, um, they started those protests in worship, right? They started in worship, um, and they worship for hours before they go out and march, because that's what you have to do to, to, to gird yourself up and to focus on the Lord, um, that's left out a lot nowadays, but that, that is how the black church responded in the 60s in civil rights. Um, so I, I just want to remind us to hope in the Lord. Um, the end of this passage, verse 7, says, The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, I think that has to do with how they resolved this conflict, how they chose to empower the marginalized. I think people saw that. I think the priests who were also in power in their system, right? The priests were probably in charge of the distribution of food amongst, amongst the Jews, amongst Judaism. Man, I think they saw that, and that, that spoke to them. Man, if the church, if the church, I don't want the church to be attacked physically. I don't want any gunmen to come shooting anybody anywhere at any church, at any place of worship. But man, what would it be like for the out there white supremacists to think that the Christian church was being too kind to refugees and they, wanted, and, and they needed to stop us, right? What would that be like if that was our reputation um, for the church to love? 
I want you to give us a moment of reflection um, because it's been a lot. One is, one question would be, how is God leading you to lament? There might be a space that has been brought up for you that like, oh man, I need to lament something. There's something that um, was spoken about um, racism or something that for you personally, you're realizing, oh, that's, that's something I need to lament. Or maybe for you on behalf of others, right? Maybe you're thinking about the synagogue yesterday or um, um, about the ways um, other communities of color have been impacted by the system as well. So it might be your own community, it might be another community. What, are some, what is God leading you to lament? And also, how is God calling you to respond and act in hope? I don't know what your sphere of influence is. I don't know what your, your kid's school is like. I don't know what your school is like, your place of work. What are the places you can speak up? Your family, maybe, even? Um, it really struck me, the song we sang earlier, Hosanna. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. I can't help but imagine that yesterday God's heart was really broken um, by the violence at the synagogue, um, by the violence at Kroger in Louisville. Um, yeah, I want our hearts to break for what, God, what, what breaks God's heart. And Hosanna literally means save us, right? It literally means save us. So we're asking God to do the saving and asking God what is our small part of faithfulness in that. Um, let me pray for us. God, thanks for this church, this body that you've called together uh, to do life together, um, to minister um, here. God, thank you for the long history that they have and um, the community that you've brought together. And God, um, as you've uh, called me here to speak, God, I trust you with the words that have been spoken, um, that you would use them, that your spirit would be the one working and moving um, calling people to lament, calling people to act and respond in hope. God, I don't know what that is for, for the individuals here, for even the community as a whole. What are you inviting them to respond? How are you inviting them to respond? But God, I trust you with those words. Um, you said that your word goes out and doesn't return void. So we ask for that, God. Would you continue working in my heart, in our hearts, um, inviting us to those acts of faithfulness? Um, God, that, that, um, that our hearts would break for what breaks yours, and God, that we would look to you to be the one that saves us. Um, the power seems strong, God. Um, the violence seems strong. We know that uh, you're creating a new, a new heaven and a new earth, and we long for that, God. Um, would you continue to speak to us as we reflect on, on what you're calling each of us to? We love you, God, and we trust you. We pray this in your name. Amen.